We're delighted that you're with us this morning, and now we come to the Word. If ever, if ever we've loved the Lord Jesus, may it be today as we come to His Word. Take your Bibles and please turn to the book of Titus. In your Bibles to Paul's letter to Titus in the New Testament. I'm sure in many ways my life is not much different than yours in that as I think back to when I was younger, there was a cast of characters in my life. You know the way we use that phrase, that guy's a character. And if I could tell you some stories about some of the people I grew up with, in my church particularly, somewhat in my neighborhood and maybe some of my teachers in school, but particularly I spent so much time being raised in a church and uh, there were some people that when I looked at them I thought, And this is going to sound harsh, I know, but I just want to be honest with you. I thought, God, help me never be like that person. (laughs) But then there are other people that when I thought about getting old, I thought, I would really hope and love and dream to be like that person. Now, I'm embarrassed to say this, but when I looked at these people and I thought, when I get old, I want to be like them, they were only like 30 years old at the time, (laughs) which is a sobering thing to stand here and think about. I want to be like that when I get old. Have you ever said that about someone? In your younger years, you looked and you thought, love to be like that person. Maybe more to the point, is there anybody that looks at us and says, I want to be like them when I get old? I want to have the kind of faith I want to live in the kind of confidence. I want to manifest the kind of humility that that person manifests. I think when we think about life in those terms, we can be sobered. It can be humbling. We're going to talk a lot about humility this morning. But the truth is, in Jesus Christ, in what we call the gospel, in living out the gospel, the fact that our lives have been changed because of our hope and faith in Jesus, that's where we find meaning and purpose in life. And that's true whether we end up living great lives, quote-unquote, that are well-recognized by the folks around us or even by the broader world, or more likely for nearly all of us, we're going to live mundane lives. We're going to live routine lives. And if we're honest, sometimes we will live quite difficult lives. But what we're called to do is, as followers of Jesus, we're called to live a missional life. We're called to live a life that's on mission. We're called to understand who we are and who God has designed us to be and what that looks like in the broader world. It's another way to say it. We live on mission. And the mystery of this is that whether we're great or whether we're small, whether we're noticed or whether we are obscure that our lives, according to God's design, our lives can make a difference. Our lives can make a difference. And that's what we find in God's Word. As Paul is writing to Titus, and Titus left on the island of Crete to organize and to set in order the various young churches that are there. And as we've worked our way through this letter of instruction to this young pastor who really is training other pastors and elders and setting the church in order, according to chapter 1, what we find is that there's a way in which we can follow Jesus. There's a way in which we can live life that really does make a difference for time and for eternity. 
we have a description of this, for example, in chapter 2, picking it up in verse 13, in the middle of the verse, where Paul, writing to Titus, he reminds him about the core truths that we celebrate, the core truths we gather around, even this morning. In verse 13 of chapter 2, we read these words, Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself, watch this, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's who we are to be. That's our identity. We are a unique possession by God, deeply cared for, set apart for a reason. Not just the great people, not just the people that have made history, but the average people that were following Jesus on the island of Crete 2,000 years ago, and the average believer that sits here in Calvary Baptist on Sunday morning in Santa Barbara in 2022. For all of us, we are part of God's unique possession, and that should define our sense of identity. And so what happens, and this happens quite often in the New Testament, is there's an interweaving between our responsibilities and our identity. And what we find in Scripture is that there is always this connection when we are given an imperative, a command, that command is always linked to who we are. And we find that woven throughout the book of Titus, and we're going to see it again today because much of our time this morning is going to talk about duties or responsibilities or commands. And let me just prepare you, they're not easy commands. But these commands that are not easy, the way we're to understand them, and I'll go further, the way we are to put them into practice is based and grounded in our understanding of who we are as this unique possession by God, people who are zealous for good deeds, not apathetic, not careless, but zealous for good works. So what we find is that this is really, watch me here, hold on, this is a very practical theology, or it's a very theological practicum. Uh, very often in our minds, we make those dichotomous, we separate theology and practice. And you have a lot of people say, well, I don't really care about the theology, just, just tell me how to live. And you have other people, sadly, who they'll spend a lot of time talking theology, and they rarely put it into practice. But our practice as Jesus followers is always grounded in theology, the theology of who God is and what He has done. And our theology always should issue forth in the practical evidence or fruit of our lives. So it's practical theology, and don't let that term ever scare you, because if your practice is unmoored and untethered from theology, then what you end up doing, if not in your life, then surely in the lives of those who will come after you, there will be a lack, we sang it this morning, of a sure and steady anchor. It's not obedience just for obedience sake. It's obedience grounded in who we are as God's people through what we call the gospel. So our duty is rooted in doctrine. Our duty is rooted in our truest identity. We are God's unique people. We are His special possession. And as we've said over the last couple of weeks, if we wanted to put a colloquial phrase on what our duty looks like, our duty is to make our God look good. That's what we're called to do. We are called to make our God look good, as opposed to putting Him to shame as opposed to besmirching his reputation, his glory. 
If you'll forgive me, because Queen Elizabeth is so much in the news, I found it providential. I stumbled across this brief quote this week. Queen Elizabeth and Princess Margaret, when they were young girls, were told this, royal children have royal manners. Royal children have royal manners. And clearly the application is, those of us who are God's special people, we live as God's special people. At least we should. So the question is a legitimate question. What does it look like for Cretans to make God look good? What does it look like for us to make God look good? Well, at least part of the answer to that question is our text this morning. So we'll pick it up in the last verse of chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 15, and we'll read down into chapter 3 this morning. So Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, and as I read, I would remind you, as I always do, this is God's word for us today. Titus 2, verse 15. Here the Bible says to Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. And there's more there, but that's where we'll stop this morning. He saved us. So here's how we're to live. Because we used to live this other way, but God has saved us. And what we find implied in this text, and really the entire book of Titus, is that the gospel, its work in our life, it, it, our lives, it calls us and equips us to live as God's unique people. Now what I'm going to show you this morning is that there's this paradox with how we live. Because the paradox is, I suppose perhaps it might sound odd if you were in a conversation with your neighbor tomorrow and somebody says, yeah, I saw you went to church yesterday. What did the preacher talk about? And you said, well, the preacher told us how we're God's special people. Now, that would be a very accurate description of what I'm talking about. But you recognize that that would sound, how would it sound to your neighbor? Would sound kind of puffed up. Would sound kind of proud. It would sound as, by the way, we sometimes are accused of. It sounds like we know more than other people. It sounds like we have a special privilege. And the paradox is this. As you recognize who God has made us, who God has called us to be as His special, unique people, that is fleshed out, not in pride, but it's fleshed out in humility. And that's what we're going to see over and over again this morning. It's humility. All of this requires humility. To live the way we live is not a life of pride and arrogance. It's not even a life of bravado. I I wouldn't even call it necessarily a life of courage, although there are clearly places where we have to engage courage. But it's really a life of humility. And the phrase I want to borrow this morning from the concept of submission, which we find in this book and we find in the New Testament, is the idea of lining up, that we're to line up under. Because that's 
the most precise understanding of the Greek word that's often translated submission is to line up under, in order. It's the idea of getting in line. It's, you know, I don't know about you, but I hate lines. We're leaving this afternoon to go to Nashville for a preaching conference, and we're flying southwest, and you know what that means. You have to get in line. You have to get your number, which I happen to remember at 2 o'clock in the morning this morning that I hadn't gotten my number yet. And you know the later, my wife doesn't know this, I'm just ex- revealing this to her right now, <laughs> that the later you get the number, the farther back in the plane you are, right? I, I hate lines. All of us do, right? I mean, is that something you love? Disneyland, let's go to Disneyland and wait in line all day. Pay $300 to wait in line all day. Some people love it, but most of us, we have no use for it. And it takes a level of humility to line up when other people wouldn't do so. To, to get in line, to, 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 to embrace the kind of humility that says, I don't want to wait, I don't want to submit, I don't want to obey. But what we have to deal with this morning is flowing all through these verses that we're going to look at is this responsibility to chase after humility and a willingness to say, let me get in line. And the implication of, letting, of saying, let me get in line is, you can go in front of me. That's what we find in the text. So we're talking about this morning humility, and our tendency is to be reactionary, right? I mean, none of us... None of us love this, especially when we feel vulnerable, especially when somebody says, we have to do this. My wife often warns me as I preach, and she's very helpful in this, but every now and then I'll get excited and I'll start doing this, doing this, doing this. And she says, when you do that, I quit listening because nobody wants to be pointed at. Nobody wants to be, nobody wants to be commanded. And yet part of the Christian life is a willingness to get in line, is that humility. The rebellion, we talk often here about rebellion because I think it's the core identity of us in our sinfulness. It's still in the DNA of our flesh. I don't mean our physical bodies. I mean our sinfulness that we carry around. This rebellion that says, don't tell me what to do. I'd rather be my own boss. I'd rather make my own choices. I'd rather be at the front of the line. But if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to understand humility. And we've already seen that in Titus 2, haven't we? In spite of the fact that some of you wish we hadn't had to talk about it, there's all kinds of talk in Titus 2 about submission, about wives submitting to their husbands, about about the problem of ancient slavery and how slaves were called to submit. And those are uncomfortable truths today. Why? Because there's just something so anti-authoritarian that drives us individually, and now it is a key characteristic of our culture. But I'm here to tell you that all of this requires humility, a willingness on our part, to line up. First of all, as church members, under spiritual authority to line up. That's what Paul is getting at when he talks to Titus in verse 15 of chapter 2. Notice it again. He says, Titus declared these things, exhort and rebuke, and look at those words. What do they say? With all authority. With all authority. So this is what you should expect from the teaching ministry of your church, whether it's this church or 
your home church or wherever you are part of a church family, you should expect when you come especially to worship, to gathered worship, you should expect your elders or your pastors to declare these things, and some of these things are uncomfortable. We've seen them over the last several weeks from what we would call chapter 2. Remember, chapter 3 follows chapter 2. Nope, nobody's writing that down, but chapter 3 follows chapter 2. And therefore, when he says these things, he's talking about all the things he's talked about in chapter 2. Those things are to be declared. Some of them are easy. Some of them are encouraging. But I want to tell you, some of them are hard. Some of them we don't want to hear because some of them carry authority that causes us to bristle, perhaps. But Titus is told by Paul, and then Titus is to train his other pastors that they must declare these things. And then there's the responsibility of exhorting, exhort regarding these things. The term exhort is a great word. It has this idea of encouraging or instructing or advocating. It, it reminds me of the term we saw last week about how grace trains. There's an exhortation. So it's not enough just to comprehend the truth, but then we have to be pushed forward to put the truth into practice. That's exhortation. And so you need to be careful if you find a church that every Sunday morning is just a seminary lecture, trying to puff up your head with more information about the Bible. But there's never a challenge to put it into practice. That's exhortation. There's never a practical application of the Word. There's a declaration, and then there's exhortation, and then there's rebuke. Do you see that? Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Because for nearly all of us, no, not nearly, I don't know why that word would be in there, for all of us, there are times when we push back. There are times when we don't want to hear what we need to hear. There are times when we refuse to obey what we hear. There are times every now and then when we have forgotten, or we've been misled, or we've been mistaught, as it were. And so there's a level of rebuke. And so every now and then, though I try not to point my finger, from the perspective of the Word of God, we need to be challenged and rebuked. The idea of rebuking is to expose one's sin for the sake of correction. And that's what the Bible will sometimes do. The Holy Spirit uses the Word to bring up our sin. And the reason this is to be done with all authority is because, listen carefully, none of this is optional. That's such a countercultural truth. But none of it is optional. This may be more difficult for people in the modern world, and particularly for people in America, to grasp than perhaps it ever has been. Because we are so used to being consumers and to making our individual choices and to choose what we want to choose. But Titus is told by Paul, do all of this and do it with authority because the truth is when you're speaking the truth of the Word of God, you're not presenting good options or helpful advice. You are declaring the counsel of God. So there's a level of authority. So what we find here is that when your pastor, when the leadership of your church speaks God's Word, they do so with authority. We're not talking about some kind of weird, cultish kind of behavior of incidental or superfluous issues of your life, but we are talking about when a teaching ministry from your church opens the Word of God and declares with authority what God says, you are not free to ignore it. 
you're called to obey, to submit, to follow, to, here's the word, line up under it. We find this in other places in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, you know this passage, right? Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And so for an anti-authoritarian culture like Crete and like California, we must never forget there's an authority. And by the way, there's a lot of conflict, a lot of controversy right now about what often is called Christian nationalism and politics and theonomy, trying to get the rule of God in our culture and and all of these different positions. And I want to tell you it is a firestorm of controversy. But the reality is everyone chooses some kind of authority. Everyone traces their authority somewhere. You get that, right? It's either science or it's some kind of education or it's personal autonomy and freedom, or it's some kind of nebulous, feel-good, kind of spiritualized idea of identity out in the ether. Everyone finds authority somewhere. All we're saying is that both natural law and the history of the truth of Christianity says that God's authority is mediated in His Word, and that's where we find our authority. But that's not all, because there's one more phrase in verse 15. Look at it. Paul says to Titus, let no one disregard you. And the term disregard, some of your translations may say dismiss you, or the the word literally in Greek is the idea to think around someone or to outthink them. And it has the idea of despising or looking down upon, but it's more specific than that. And Paul says, to Titus as a preacher, and Titus is to be telling his pastors he's training, that this is what you're to do. You're to declare these things and exhort, train people, and when they refuse to obey, you're to rebuke them, and you're to do it with authority, and don't let anybody disregard you. Now, Paul says much the same thing to Timothy. You remember that? And he says it to Timothy, emphasizing Timothy's youth, but he doesn't say that to Titus. But if you remember from chapter 2, we know that Titus was not an older man. He's addressed with the younger men of the congregation. So clearly there's a sense of youth involved in this, and that may well be the case. But I want you to think about that command for just a minute. Let no one disregard you. How do you put that into practice if you're Titus? How do you put that into practice if you're me, if you're any teaching or preaching pastor? Let no one disregard you. How could Titus let no one do this? How is it under his control? Well, let me suggest two things about this. The first is this. Remember that this letter was for public consumption. So Paul is saying it to Titus, but he's really saying it to the pastors that Titus is training, and he's also saying it to all the people that are going to have to be listening to those pastors preach. They're overhearing this discussion. That's the purpose of God's word in apostolic truth is not just for the pastors. It's the overflow into the body of Christ, into the people. So at the very least, this is a warning to people. You better not disregard your pastor as he proclaims the word of God, your preacher's But there's also, I think, in some of this, and here's where I'll turn and preach to myself for a moment, 
there's a sense that we must never teach or lead with shallowness. Remember, the idea of the word, don't let anyone disregard you, carries with it the idea of being outfought. So we can't expose ourselves to the vulnerability of being thought around or being outfought. This means we can never be guilty of a lack of preparation. It means we can't chase after superficial teaching so that critics would think circles around us. This is the reason the New Testament describes the work of a teaching elder as hard work. Because we expose ourselves to the danger of having a shallow ministry of teaching the Word of God in such a way that it's easily dismissed or disregarded. So where we are left is that a preacher has to decide whether he will tickle ears or bruise toes. That's a decision every preacher has to make. Am I going to stand up on Sunday and make people feel good? Or am I going to stand up on Sunday and declare with authority God's Word regardless of the responses? That's what we're called for. That's what we're called to. And the implication of this is as God's people, as church members, you are to line up under that kind of teaching. You are to line up under the authority of God's Word. When the preacher declares faithfully what the Bible says, you are responsible to line up. So a preacher has to decide whether he will tickle ears or stomp on toes. A, A church member has to decide how they will respond to God's Word when it's accurately taught. Humility is demanded that as church members, as part of a church family, we line up. Humility also requires things of us as citizens, a level of humility as citizens. We have to line up as citizens, as citizens under civil authority. So as church members, it's under spiritual authority. It's under the Word of God. We're to line up as church members. But then as citizens, we also are citizens. We're not just church members, but we're citizens in Crete, they were technically citizens of Rome, at least to some degree. Uh, Here, we are citizens of the United States of America, and we have responsibility under civil authority. And we're to line up under civil authority. And that is covered in verse 1 of chapter 3. Look at it again. Remind them to be submissive, there's the word, to line up, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, that's the attitude it seems to be, and to be obedient, that's the action. So in our attitude towards civil authorities and in our actions, we are to be respectful, we are to be humble, we are to line up under the governmental authorities. Now, this is an entire sermon that I'm going to skip today, other than saying this. God ordained government for order. God ordained government, according to Romans 13, to punish evil, to prevent anarchy. And the New Testament calls us to line up under our authority, our governmental authorities. Now, remember this pushback we're talking about today, this this part of our DNA that wants to, you know, we don't want to line up. I'm going to suggest, and please forgive me if you're offended by this, I'm going to suggest that the vast majority of us here, when we hear this responsibility to line up under governing authorities, our response is this, if only apostle knew about president, and fill in the blank. 
And we have all the reasons why why would we line up under this president or this governor or this mayor? And when we say that, we forget that when Paul wrote to Titus, the emperor was a guy named Nero, who evidently made a hobby of making human torches out of Christians and lighting his gardens at night. Paul says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. And remind them because Jesus' followers tend to have short memories. Evidently, they'd already heard this. The people of God always tend to forget. You remember our studies through the book of Judges, how often they forgot the God of Israel? So we have to be reminded, so it was with the Cretans, and so it is with us. We find it convenient to forget. We need reminding. Now, that's not all I'll say about that issue, but let me go on to the rest of verse 1 and show you that this humility, this willingness to line up, it comes to us as church members under spiritual authority, it comes to us as citizens under civil authority, and it also then comes to us as neighbors under what I'd call this morning the image of God. Because of the image of God in our neighbors, we're called to a life of humility. We're called to line up, as it were. We're called to chase after humility. And so you see what Paul's doing. He goes from the general responsibilities of the pastor teaching the people in the church, and then he talks about the government and all of the issues in the government, but then he brings it down to your neighborhood. It brings it down to those that live around us. So we see it there in the middle of verse 1. Look at it again, where he says you're to remind them to be ready for every good work. Remember, what did it say back in chapter 2, verse 14? Zealous for what? Good works. So in our neighborhood, with the people around us, we need to be eager and ready to do every good work. By the way, in Titus, go back to chapter 1. Look at verse 16. Talking about false teachers. If you have your Bibles open still, I hope you do. In Titus chapter 1, look at verse 16. Look at, listen to this description. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You see, there's the difference. We are called, we are equipped for good works. We are to be zealous for good works. And here it says in verse 1, we are to be ready for every good work. Well, and when we do that, people are just going to applaud us, aren't they? We're going to be heroes, right? Now look at the next verse. To speak evil of no one. The word literally there is to blaspheme. And the reason you blaspheme no one is because they're made in the image of God. They're an image bearer, just like you are. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle. One paraphrase calls this, I love this Greek word, and one paraphrase uses the term big-hearted. It's a different word from the typical word for gentleness. It's the idea of being big-hearted. The way I've described this over the years, it's a willingness not to insist on 100 cents for every dollar. Now, it's hard for some of us, Right? But it's this big-heartedness. It's, this, it's a sense of generosity to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy. Some of your translations say humility or genuine humility. Perfect courtesy toward all people. So you see what this text is doing. We all want to be rebels. 
And so we're sitting there and the preacher tells us something we don't want to hear and we want to push back, but we're supposed to line up under it if he's speaking faithfully with God's Word. And then in the government, the government is always power-hungry. The government always draws people like Nero, and yet we are called to respect the government, to be submissive in government, and we push back in that. We don't want to. We have all of our rationalizations, but as God's people, we're called to obey government. And it even gets down to the neighborhood because there are these people, and unlike us, they're hard to get along with. Sometimes they're in our family. They will often be in our workplace. And they'll sometimes be around the corner in our neighborhood. And we'll want to stake our position and we'll want to go toe-to-toe and nose-to-nose. And we'll want to make our point and we'll want to win the day. And the truth is that our general attitude has to be one of humility. To serve, to line up under, as it were. Because these people bear the image of God. I think one of the great challenges is that we think things are going to go well when we have no promise that they will. Paul Tripp wrote a book years ago about marriage and cleverly titled it, What Did You Expect? I thought that was a great title. What did you expect? Did you expect perfection? Did you expect unending peace? Like the old country song says, I never promised you a rose garden, right? And even a rose garden has thorns. What do we expect living in this world? Jesus warned us of this. You remember what Jesus says in John 15 to his disciples? He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, folks, let's just get ready for it. In history, there have been times that are worse than others. And even in the history of our nation, there are times when it is not as bad as it is now, and it may get well worse than it is now. But the reality is simply this. The, you know the world system loves the Bible, at least some of the verses in the Bible. You know the most popular verses in the Bible for the world system? There are really three of them, at least. One is, do not judge. They love that one. Another is, God is love. And another one is, let him that is without sin cast the first stone. It's amazing how theologically astute often our neighbors can become, right? about issues that are controversial. But listen, if you're going to write something down today about the world in which we live, pagans going to peg. Pagans are going to be pagans. You don't expect them to be Jesus followers. But God's people are here to be zealous for good works and to make God look good. And in the middle of that, what often might end up being persecution, although quite frankly, the persecution you and I experience is still Nothing compared to what believers in history have experienced. But nevertheless, when things, when we're not appreciated, when we're not, when, when, when we're accused of false motives, when things don't go the way we think they should go, we are still called to be this kind of person. We're to make a difference. You say, well, it's really tough because of the culture. Right. Just like it was when Israel was taken to captivity in Babylon. 
And what did God say to them? Jeremiah 29, 7, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So we're to be salt and light. We're to make a difference. We're to be zealous for good works. We're to chase after Jesus and never compromise that position as God's people, but we're to do so in a way of humility, in a way that blesses our community. And you know what this ends up looking like? I hate to say it. I wish I could skip this part. But this is a willingness to not stubbornly insist on our own rights. To take the risk of giving up our rights. And some of us, instinctively, some of us are born red-blooded Americans, right? I mean, this is like, these kinds of sermons don't go over well in Texas, I want to tell you. But the reality is, We tend to say, not me, but I'd ask you this morning, what about Jesus? What does 1 Peter tell us about Jesus? When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What a difference it would make if you and I lived this way. If we said, I'm going to line up. I'm going to line up at church. I'm I'm going to line up under the government. I'm going to line up with my neighbors. Now, if you follow along on the outline that's there on the bulletin, you'll notice that I ask the question, are there exceptions? And sure, perhaps there are exceptions at times. Are there places where we, we can't just line up? Yes. For example, when you face corrupt or tyrannical church leaders, The Old Testament talks about false shepherds or false prophets. The New Testament has a process for dealing with elders who sin, who disqualify themselves. So there are times when we face the kinds of circumstances where we can't just line up. And we would say the same thing about corrupt, tyrannical government. Examples in the Old Testament include the midwives who saved the babies against the law. It includes Daniel and his three brethren who would not bow, who would not live as Babylon insisted they live. In the New Testament, it includes the apostles who preached even though they were beaten and told not to. When the government becomes tyrannical and corrupt, there are places where we say, no, we cannot line up. The key to this is when government ceases to be and to do what government is designed by God to be and to do. But I want to tell you, and I've done a lot of work on this this week, and I've struggled over the issue, that generally speaking, The examples we see, they don't reflect wholesale rebellion or revolution. Paul still leveraged his citizenship while Nero was emperor. And so he honored and used his Roman citizenship even at the same time when ultimately he lost his life. So there has to be some wisdom where we say, this part of government, yes indeed, I will submit to. But here's where government has overstepped its bounds. And where government oversteps its bounds, I'm going to say no. I'm not going to line up. And I'm going to bear the consequences. That's the responsibility. In history, it's been the response of believers. It must be our response today. And there's even exceptions in our humility with other people where they are incorrigible, where they are corrupt, even in personal relationships, there is a limit to how much we line up, to how much we respond with just humility. And we see that, ironically enough, 
right here in this chapter. Because look down, we'll get to this in a couple of weeks, but look down in verses 9 through 11. This is the same chapter, right? In verse 9, it says, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. So there reaches a time where you don't respond with humility. You're not humble. You don't just line up. When a person reaches a place of such divisiveness, you say no more. So there are exceptions. But listen, folks, the exceptions are always the exceptions. And what happens way too often is if I experience something I don't like, something that rubs me the wrong way, I want to jump to the exception. When what this text says is that as members of the church and as citizens and even as neighbors, we should line up, we should chase after humility There's a lot of difficulty here about how do we handle those exceptions? How do we understand them? And I just want to tell you this. If you're leaning on quoting passages of Scripture to get you through processing the exceptions, proof texting almost never is effective. You have to have, I won't take time to develop this this morning, you have to have a robust, a whole theological view of all of life in order to make these decisions. Otherwise, how will you know when government has overstepped its bounds if you haven't developed a healthy understanding of God's sovereignty and why government exists and then what government is to be doing and then what government is doing in any particular circumstance? And that doesn't work if you just grab Romans 13 and throw it out there. Or on the other hand, grab the story of the three Hebrew young men and say, I'm going to disobey the government. You have to have a robust and a whole and a healthy theology that understands what God is doing in history and what's revealed. And you know where you get this? Forgive me for saying it, but you get it in the church. You get it in the church as you grow together, as you study together, as you share with one another, as you pray for one another. That's where it comes from. Now I'm running out of time, so let me give you the rest of the text. Beginning in verse 3. What we find in verse 3 and verse 4 and 5, is a clarifying motivation to all of this. And here's how I describe it this morning. This clarifying motivation, it's, it's a tool that the New Testament often uses. It's a tool that essentially it's this, then, but now. Those are the words, then, but now. Because what we find in verse 3 is Paul says, then you used to live this way, but now this has happened. So look at it with me, beginning in verse 3. It's a flashback to the past. It's for contrasting. For we ourselves, verse 3, notice Paul includes he and Titus in this, which is a little unusual because what he's really getting ready to describe is a general Gentile kind of living, and he was Jewish. But nevertheless, for we ourselves were once, and watch for three levels of depravity, we were foolish, that is, we were deceived, We were disobedient, led astray, so there's willful folly, and then we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. That's bondage. You see the digression? We were deceived, and then we we willfully chased after folly, and we ended up in bondage. We're slaves. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. All of us have B.C. lives. You know that? Before Christ. All of us have lives B.C. 
even for those of us who came to Christ at an early age, like I have a hard time thinking about my own life in these terms of chapter 3, verse 3, because I was saved as a young child. But you know what I see? I see what my flesh is still like today, and I try to imagine with a sense of dread, I try to imagine what my life would be like had God not saved me. I know the struggle I have as a believer. What if I were not a believer? And that's what verse 3 is about. It's about this is, this is kind of who we are in our sinfulness. This is the picture of our rebellion. And reading this, all of us, we should pause. I know some of you have very painful memories of the before, of the way you lived, described in this verse. There are others of us who we, we are grateful, but we are kind of terrified when we think about the sin that still resides in us and what we would be like apart from Christ. But then look at verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Can I ask you a question? When you think of God, do you think of Him as kind? We'll talk more about this next week. We'll begin next week with verse 4. But this text says that The kindness of God is in play. His goodness is what has led us to salvation. What has brought about the change that we don't live in verse 3 anymore because in verse 4, but God, the goodness and loving kindness of God, who's our Savior, when it appeared, He saved us. Not by works done by us in righteousness. There's the works. The works are there, but the works are the result, not the cause. The works are the fruit, not the root, not by works of righteousness done by us, but according to His own mercy. So this is the ground of our duties. This is gospel living. Now, Christian, living in this real world, we don't, we're not to escape it. We're not to run from it. We're not to hide in it. We're to go out on a limb. We're to row upstream. We're to, we're to go down the dangerous rapids. We're to take risks. And sometimes there's this appeal of a lazy, still water of just floating along. But I want to tell you, that's where the leeches usually are. And we're to take risk. We're to make a difference. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's who we're to be. We're God's special people. Now, Do you think this is a strategy, this living in humility, this being zealous for good works, is this a strategy for kind of a peaceful coexistence, or is it a strategy that is to be missional in the world? That's a trick question, because the answer is yes. What the New Testament tells us is we're to live this way as Jesus followers in order that 
for example, submitting to government, 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're to live this way in order that we may live peaceable lives and the gospel might be advanced. But at the very same time, when we live this way, the gospel is advanced and the gospel's put on display. I don't want to live this way in my flesh. I don't want to line up. I don't want to chase humility. I want a hundred cents for every dollar, believe me. I want to stake my position and I want to be heard. But the gospel, living it out, it reminds us of who we were and says now we're different kind of people and we're here to make our God look good. And we're to chase after humility. If I had time today, I'd go to Philippians 2 because you know what we have there? We have the example of Jesus. If Jesus, who in his very incarnation and death chased after humility, you think humility is too hard for us? Is it beneath us? No, this is what our Savior did in bringing us salvation. Your takeaway today is God's people. Our bold humility makes our God look good. Bold, courageous humility, that's what it takes. Courageous humility. When we live that way, our God looks good. That's who we're called to be. Father, speak to our hearts today. These are not easy things. We we struggle with our flesh, so we want to push back. We, We want to get to the front of the line. We want to make sure we're never left behind. We're We're still in our flesh rebels at heart, but our hearts have been changed through the gospel. And so help us, Lord, help us find this this path to humility, a willingness to humble ourselves under the Word of God, to line up under it, a willingness to, to, in the difficulty of our current culture, to respect government and submit to it where we must, and help us in our relationships to be people who see the image of God in others and are willing to serve and chase humility in our relationships. Father, we can't do this in our own strength. We ask for the Holy Spirit to strengthen us. We ask for a clearer sense of the gospel and the mystery of being your special people. Ground us in time, but help us see that we are linked to eternity. Indeed, We are committed and held by, committed to and held by this one who is the ancient of days. Thank you for the grace that you've given us in Jesus. Help us live it out every day. In Jesus' name, amen.